Hey, welcome to The Mag Life. I'm Daniel Shaw, and I've got a special guest today. I've got Two Lamb from Ronin Tactics, and uh, he is just a, a superstar everywhere from video games to, to training. Um, I've been using his belt for many, many years now, and I like it a lot if we're getting into the gear stuff. And my favorite thing from Ronin is actually his T-shirt. It's like the best-fitting T-shirt ever. Hey, Two, welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going, man? Thank you for having me on. Yeah, man. Uh, it's a pleasure. You know, I've been watching you from afar. We, we met briefly a few years ago in Ohio, just shook your hand and I paid your wife some money and uh, <laughs> and and took a belt and a shirt from you and stuff. But, um, you know, I, we have a, a lot of mutual friends and it's like our paths have almost crossed a lot of times, but we've never had a chance to sit down and talk. And, you know, I've been listening to you and, and reading some things that the people wrote in interviews and stuff and uh, and watching your videos. And I, I always find a very similar mindset. Um, even even a, a couple of years ago, you were teaching at the Ohio Tactical Officer Association annual conference, and um, I had a, a few guys came over to my class right after taking your class. And I, I teach patrol rifle problem solver class. It's a lot of thinking. Uh, the idea is to be really, really good at the fundamentals to free up our mind, to be able to think about the hard stuff, tactics, uh, to get to the point where that unconscious competence, where uh, what the Japanese refer to as mushin, if I'm saying that correctly. Um, yes. The uh, and I was say, saying these things in the class and everything else, and uh, a couple of the guys were like, "Man, have you ever trained with Two Lamp?" And I was like, "No." And uh, he was like, "He was saying the same thing yesterday about this right here." And it's really cool to hear that from two different perspectives, two different weapons, and like two different you know backgrounds. But you guys have both found the same thing that we need to free our mind to think tactics and do all these things that we know are going to be in the fight without thought. And uh, so they, they were like, it was a great class with yours. So I, I've heard nothing but great things about yours. Thank you. All right. To what uh, I've read this and, and I've heard it a little bit, but man, I, I'm a story guy. Like I love stories. I love telling stories. I love hearing stories. I love learning about how stories work, like good stories. Um, and I think you have a very interesting story. Um that also I can closely relate to in, in my family um, because uh, my, my wife's father was born and raised in Vietnam and Arvin Ranger and, and was brought over um, when the embassies were being evacuated and such. And uh, so I've got some, some close ties there and, and know uh, some things there. And you've got a very interesting story that I want to know how you got to this path with this mindset that you have and the skill level you have. Um, and, and went down the, you chose a hard road. You had a certain path, then you chose a difficult path in special forces. And I, I just want to know how that went down. You know, man, I, I, every path, right, starts off uh, with a purpose. And, you know, my purpose was, and I'll tell you, you know, I was defeated at one point in my life, especially in childhood years. And the reason why I said this is, you know, I was born in war. I was born in, out of Vietnam. I was born on the losing side of uh, the Vietnam War. I was born in in Saigon, at the basement floor of the Saigon Hospital. The morning of my birth, my mother shielded my body from incoming artillery fire. At three months old, I lost my freedoms to uh, the communist regime. And uh, we, we live in oppression until I was three years old. Now, when I say that is, uh, during the initial uh, invasion, uh, the North Vietnamese, took out anybody that was you know, in position of power. So my family served alongside the Americans and they were immediately executed. My uncles were immediately executed in the streets. Uh, my other uncles were imprisoned in uh, re-education camps. We were oppressed. Uh, we were facing genocide. 
Uh, you can read about it, you know, in the histories. Um, our lives were not even worth a bullet. They would bag our heads and uh, suffocate us in the uh, rice fields. Uh, at three years old, my mother, uh, my father, and my brother, we escaped on an overstuffed wooden fishing boat with hundreds of thousands of other fleeing refugees in that, in that time. Um, during that time, a lot of the neighboring countries would come in because they knew there was a lot of fleeing refugees. And they would uh, stop our boats, board the boats, uh, kill the men, rape the women, and torture the children. You know, it was common practice amongst fleeing refugees to, uh, to carry poison within their belongings. And um, the poison was given to their children once that journey ends for them, you know, so they won't endure such a torturous death. Uh, we, we somehow, we navigated out of uh, Vietnam and we made our way into um, Malaysia where the Coast Guard stopped us at gunpoint. Um, they told us that we're not welcome in their country. They're not accepting any more refugees. Uh, they, how, how old were you at this time whenever you were, you were fleeing? Three years old. Okay, so you remember some of this. I, I remember it's like a dream, right, that I had to ask my mother uh, about these dreams or visions as I was growing up. You know, and then my mother would tie it to a story, right? And and my mother made sure that we never forgot. You know, so as I was raised, it was You've already said so many powerful things just in, in this conversation, man. Like starting your life with that level of oppression, oppression, getting rid of the men in your lives, the the men that, that could could train you and, and raise you to fight against that type thing. And then um your your mom just then, you know, telling the the stories about the um Oh man, it just this, this is you're. I think in a in a nonviolent sense, we're seeing a lot of that same thing right now. Yeah. Uh, the the same similar attacks just just yeah. hasn't got that violent yet. And yeah. And you started that way, seeing it. Oh, I'm sorry. And and that's that's the big thing. It was like you know during that initial oppression was that they made the South Vietnamese people that were defeated to rely on the North Vietnamese. Uh, Structure their government system, right? oppression, uh, and as a special forces soldier, I can tell you that's oppression. You know that's how you know we we battle against. Uh, you have a motto that says the free, that you know the freed enslaved, the oppressor, the rare. But you know, getting back to the stories, you know, we're being oppressed and we're escaping for our lives and um, we're being pursued. They didn't. The North Vietnamese didn't let us go. We had to escape. So we, we made our way in Malaysia. They stopped us at gunpoint. They anchored our boat, drug us back out to the South China Sea, shot our motor, cut the line, and left us there to die. My mother said that we drifted, you know, and uh, it got really desperate. People were dying on the boats. Um, when I say this is this fishing boat normally fits about 40 people. We had over 100 people on this boat. We were on the bottom deck of the boat sitting up, right, upright, jam-packed into the boat. Um, rich was in there with the poor, right? Everybody was just trying to escape. The smell, the stench, the, the desperate situation, right? Can you imagine that? So people are dying on this boat as we're drifting. So I can't were, even imagine that, man. Yeah. I've seen some horrible things in my life, and I, I can't. Right. You know, and my mother, you know, she said that people were fighting, killing, you know, they were just trying. It was a survival situation. My mother drank her own urine. You know, that's how bad it got. We were de dehydrated. Um, we drifted out for 30 days out in, in the ocean in the South China Sea. 
Now, my mother lost uh, hope. She told me that she contemplated on giving us poison because we, we had no food, we had no water, and it was just a matter of time before we die. And then she said that she prayed that night, and then the storm came in. Imagine a tropical storm in the South China Sea in a fishing boat with no motor, right? This tropical storm, it, it could have easily just capsized our boat, and, and we all died. But yeah. somehow a miracle happened, and my mother said that, you know, the rain brought us more, you know, water for us to live for a few more days. And she said that one night um, there was a spotlight that hit our boat. And I remember this vision. I always remember, like, a vision of light going through the crack of a, of a boat, and I just never put it together. Well, what happened was we were on the bottom deck of the boat. A Russian supply boat was leaving out of Vietnam, saw us, hit us with a spotlight, and that was the light that we saw shine through. And and I tell you, man, you know, the Russians, you know, we, we read history, man. We're Americans. We know how cruel the Russians can be. And um, they showed us mercy. You know, they brought us one by one onto the boat. They provided medical aid because we were depleted, drifting out in the ocean. They drug us into uh, Indonesia, where they dropped us off at a refugee camp. They did tell us that um, if they were going into Vietnam, they would have took us back into Vietnam. Mm. But because they were leaving Vietnam, you know, they can't leave us out here. And you know, I mean, and how I, fortunate! You like that's a, a series of fortunate events right there, following the most unfortunate of events. You know, what I, I, I think about this is um, when my mother told me this story is that was my first lesson in humanity. You know, and it's played out as a Green Beret, obviously, but that was my first lesson. And, you know, everybody, you know, you have your evils and you have your good in this world. It's not divided by a skin color or race or a culture, you know. So they dropped us off at a refugee camp in Indonesia. And when I say this refugee camp, it's not a... There's no buildings out there. It's just a plot of land in the middle of the jungle. People die, they get killed, you know, murdered, raped for, you know, supplies. I mean, it's a desperate survival situation. So they had a command post in the center where, you know, the refugees would keep in contact with um, with outside entities to try to get, uh, you know, sponsorships to get into certain states, right? Because we lost our country. Well, my mother, my grandfather, who funded the escape, asked my mother, he said, if you were to survive this escape, and it was pretty slim to no chance that we were going to survive this escape. But he said, if you were to survive this escape, he goes, I need you to make me a promise. I need you to try to get to America. And then, uh, and the reason why is because my aunt, um, the American Special Forces Green Beret, and mm-hmm. when he fought in Vietnam, his G-base got overran. He got uh, stabbed by SKS bayonet in his rib cage um, during the fight. And um, he was immediately evacuated uh, back to the States. He took his, um, his wife, my aunt, to the States. So they lived in um, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. He was an officer in the uh, American Special Forces. So here we are at a refugee camp. We stayed there for roughly a year and a half in the refugee camps. You know, growing up, my brother said, you know, he, he was he's about four years older than me. So he was eight years old. And uh, he told me that, um, you know, when he gathered firewood, 
you know, in the mornings and stuff, he would often see dead bodies laying around these, these jungles, you know, so it was real. It was definitely real, man. And somehow, you know, uh, is your mom, is your mom still living? Yes, he is. Man, as a father, I couldn't even imagine her, her feelings and her fear. And, you know, I, I worry about my kid if he's like outside in the yard, you know, like, and I'm not right out there. You know, it's a, I'm back in the car out and then we make sure we get eyes on them and the wife's watching them, you know, every helicopter parents. But then I, I turn on some risk with some other things, but I could not imagine having my kids in that environment. She has got to be the toughest woman ever. She, she was definitely, uh, she's definitely tough, man. And she's, she's my strength, but I always asked her growing up, I said, you know, there was a slim to no chance that we would live. And she goes, I'd rather die to live in fear. So we waited for a year and a half. My uncle sponsored a pay uh, where I ended up in Fayetteville, North Carolina. You ever been there? Of all places. Yes, I grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina. And oh, great, Lejeune, great. I was stationed at Lejeune for many years and uh, yeah. a little bit further east of you. So I know all about it. Yeah, so Fayetteville, North Carolina, home of the special operations, right? Um, Fort Bragg, North Carolina, the biggest army base in the United States when it comes to special operations, you know, and um, that's where I was raised. That's where I landed. You know, man, people will ask me, hey, T, what was your early memories? What was your first memory in life? Right. And I tell you, man, you know, we just made it over to the States and um, my uncle, he was an officer. So he lived in this, you know, an officer's quarters and he had this armor. He had this hallway, man. He had all his awards and flags, special forces stuff all around the world, right? And I'm like, wow, that's really unique, man. You know? And um, but my first memory was this: my mother took me to a grocery store. Oh wow! And I, I remember I walked in the grocery store, man, and there was food everywhere, right? You know, it may not mean anything to anybody, but man, if you starved like that, if you never seen food like that, just you know, where it's just there in one spot. And you know, yeah. oh gosh, it was an amazing day. And I looked at my mother. I remember this, man. I was so happy that my mother was smiling and we we're not suffering anymore, you know. And we loaded the the, uh, the groceries in and we, we went to the car and this older guy came up to us and uh, he spit in my face. He flicked my mom off. He caught us all sorts of names. Now, I want to bring you back to that time if if the viewers don't understand vietnam was one of the most unpopular american wars in history and the reason why is because up until then you know you had world war one world war two you know korean war the military would censor all of the media coming out of these war zones mm-hmm. vietnam was the first uh, war that they allowed reporters to come in and capture war uncensored so reporters man they're going to capture war well, war's not pretty. People die, you know? So when you manipulate stories as in, hey, these American soldiers are going there killing um, innocent people, what they don't understand is these American soldiers are fighting a guerrilla warfare, unconventional warfare, where there's no uniforms, you see? So um, it was unpopular war. It was racist times in America, you know? And, and I never... I never understood why at that age I was too young to understand. Let me put you on this day, man. You know, when, when we left my uncle 
and uh, we went to live in town. We lived in a very poor part of town. We had nothing. We had we had no clothes. We had no belongings. We had nothing. We lost everything, you know, during the escape. We had no country, no freedoms. And we lived in this small apartment. I And I remember the first, the furniture that we had in that apartment, the only one, the only furniture we had in that was a, a used full-size mattress that my whole family slept on because we had nothing else. And, you know, we had refugees in the town, so they would do hand-me-downs. They'll give us clothes to try to help us out. My aunt would give us clothes, you know. But these clothes were like, you know, third hand-me-downs, so they had a lot yeah. of holes and stuff. But we, my mother was very appreciative. And she sewed up the holes and fixed the shoes so we can attend school. My mother told me this once. She said, son, you know, no matter what, no matter they, if you have an education, you can never be oppressed. So I need you to try hard in school. So uh, add, add wise to that list of the things I just said about your mom. Yeah, man, she's amazing, right? So I went to school and I want to talk about this, this specific day because, you know, this is what led me on my path, you know? Do you believe when I tell you, man, you know, you need to face your struggles to become something more? Yeah, there's, I, I say all the time, there is uh, growth and discomfort. And uh, I need to get more comfortable at being uncomfortable. And that's, that's where right. the growth comes. That's right. So let me tell you about this day. So, you know, uh, substitute teacher's day is my worst day because my name is actually pronounced And, you know, if you can imagine if you try to pronounce that, oh, yeah. you'll butcher my name. My well, well, you're also in North Carolina. So they're, yeah. they're like adding extra syllables to everything. <laughs> that's where I grew up. I could totally make fun of Piedmont, North Carolina accents. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, substitute teacher will try to pronounce my native, you know, name. And, you know, I, my name is Two Lamb, so you guys don't butcher my name. But, you know, this this day, man, you know, I had a, a bully, right? And he, he hated me. You know, I was poor. And um, we didn't have very much. And I looked different, you know. And it was very racist times. And he, he took advantage of that. And he really, you know, made my life really hard. But uh, this this day, the, the sub two teacher was trying to pronounce my name. All the kids were making fun of me, like they always do. They throwing they were throwing stuff at me, calling me a loser, and you know. And um, man, I, I was just defeated, you know. And I remember that kid, you know, he was just really just being really nasty that day. And the sub two teacher said, "All right, you two get out of my classroom, go down to the principal's office." And I'm like, "Wow, I didn't even do anything. I'm the, I'm the victim." Right. And uh, I went down to the principal's office, man. And the principal said, you sit here, you sit here and your parents are going to come pick you up. Well, you know, my mother don't have a car. We're poor, you know. So I knew I was going to be sitting there for a while. I knew it. So the first, you know, um, the bully's mother showed up first and she demanded to know what's going on. The principal stood up and looked at me. He said, yeah, your son called that boy right there a chink. Sat back down like it was normal. And she went and grabbed her son, walked over to me. I was looking at the ground, so obviously I saw her her feet. And, you know, I had to look up at her, and I was already defeated. Dude, man, I was eight years old. She uh, she said to me that I don't belong here, and her son is right. Jeez. You need to go back home to your country. <laughs> you ever cry so hard that you hyperventilate? Yes. Yeah. Well, I started crying really hard. I hyperventilated. And the principal said, boy, you're going to cry like that. Get out of my office. Go in the hallway and cry like that. So I did. 
And then, you know, I caught the bus home because my mother, you know, never picked me up, you know. So. And I was just really defeated. You know, I remember sitting in my, uh, in my room and just didn't know, you know, I just got tired of being this weak human being, you know. I was afraid of everything. I was scared of everything. I was so small and, and – uh, I was going to add, you know, that like I'm seeing a lot of, a lot of things right now that – that may have molded you into being the ridiculously large Asian guy that's like uh, worked out a heck of a lot. That's not going to really take any shit off of anybody, you know, anymore. Right. And like, then also, you know, maintaining this hard life choice, but for good reasons. So like that, so there's some pieces in the puzzle falling in the place right now. Thank you. Because you understand my friend, you understand the struggles and that's needed. So that night, you know, I sit there and I, I was so defeated, man. And, and then she told me one thing. She didn't even ask me what, what happened. You know, I was crying. She said, you know, you're going to have your bad days. And she said, but what do you learn from it? You know, so we ate dinner that night. And I, I remember sitting, I came back and I was crying and I, I just wanted to be something more. And I didn't know what. You know, I didn't know what, you know, my, my biological father, I love him, but he wasn't a warrior, you know? So eventually, you know, the, I think the escape, the, the racism, the, the pressure got to my parents and they eventually got divorced, you know, it was a very hard time for me, man. You know, was, have you read the book tribe by Sebastian Younger? No, he, it, it's a very interesting when you just said they got divorced, that that's very common, um, in, in war torn countries when, People are oppressed, and the families and the children have to come together to work together and take great risks to keep each other alive. And they, they live in small areas, very uncomfortable, without any, any really uh, comforts at all. Um, and every day is a struggle to get food and water and shelter, and hopefully we don't die by bombings in the night. And they huddle together. And in, in those situations, Sebastian looks into this and, and researches a lot. The amount of mental health issues and suicides go down tremendously because everybody's needed for each other in their tribe, in their, in their group, in their family unit. But then when things get a little bit better, maybe they're not perfect, but it's not life and death every minute of every day. People, the mental health issues start to creep back in. The fights start happening, the, the finding petty things to argue about that didn't matter whenever you were trying to find bread and water, you know, and you're sending your kids out to go steal something, you know, to survive. Um, that stuff didn't matter. But then when things get a little bit better, those petty things start to creep in and they matter. And we see divorces at a higher rate, suicides at a higher rate, mental health issues at a higher rate. Um, but under the, the worst conditions, the families and the loved ones come together and they're, they're needed. A really good book that really gave me permission to fill a lot of the things I feel after getting out of the military um, and help put it, put it into words. Really quick read, very interesting. He, he does an amazing job. Add it to the list. Anybody out there listening, it, it, it helped me a lot in my, um, I, the best way to like Victor Frankel says, my, my search for meaning, you know, like uh, that kind of thing. Just, yeah, you, that, just, that, that just all aligned with what he was saying, what you just said. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for the, the book recommendation. I love reading. So I definitely am reading that. And, and, you know, that, you know, hearing what you said kind of echoes into the veteran world as well, right? Mm -hmm. So here we are, you know, lost my father. My mother now, we're facing um, probably being homeless, you know. Um, we went days without eating a few times. We're just poor, 
you know, and I was being picked on at school, didn't have a father, my mother, you know, it was just a really rough time. What year was this about, about now, too? Oh, gosh, man. Uh, in the early 80s, you know, definitely like 81. That, that was about an hour from you. Yeah. yeah. Growing, growing up significantly differently. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. I, I, I'm glad that you, we grew up in the, in that same, uh, you know, East coast area. That's a beautiful yeah. area, isn't it? It is. It is. Yeah. So here I am, I'm defeated. And eventually my mother um, remarried to American special forces, Green Beret. And this guy was a drill sergeant, Green Beret, totally night and day difference from my father. Right. And uh, man, imagine that nine years old, you're waking up at 430 in the morning and there was a flagpole in the front yard and you, you put the flag up, put your hand over your heart, you know? So he was teaching me discipline, right? Yeah. He was a very strict man. Like he was very hard, you know, just because, you know, gosh, man, he was spec ops. So, um, like I said, it was a hard time. 4.30 in the morning, every morning. We didn't get days off. Uh, school now is you, you're going to wear slacks and you're going to wear button-down shirts to school. Uh, your grades better be good. Second, physical fitness is, is on par. So every day is physical training along with uh, academics. And then we go into work. So he had a business, uh, a family business, where we go and, and, uh, and work there as well. So zero discipline to a military, strict military. Can you imagine at eight years old, eight or nine years old? Can you imagine that? Mentally. I, I imagine that it was a tough transition, but it probably also started filling in some of the gaps of those things you felt like you were missing. Yeah. So here was the day. My mother came home with a box. And she, you know, it was probably a year, a year and a half into my parents' divorce. I haven't spoke to my dad over a year. She came home with this cardboard box and she said, this is from your father. Man, I, I set that box across the room and I, I sat down on my bed and I looked at that box, I, I would say, for hours. I didn't know what to say. So finally, I, I had the courage to open the box up and there was four uh, VHS tapes in there. Remember the VHS? Mm-hmm. So they were, they were dub tapes. They're not even real tapes. Right? They're dub and they're written in Vietnamese and I didn't understand how to read Vietnamese. So I just randomly picked a tape and I threw it in the VCR and I sat down and it was called the Art of Budo, The Way. So if you don't understand what that means, the way a samurai, the Bushido code is a, a code of ethics. It's a way of living, a higher way of living as a warrior. Where it's to make a difference in this world um, to show compassion through the warrior's path, you know, to seek enlightenment. I'm like, wow, that's so beautiful. Perfect. And the other three tapes were Bruce Lee tapes. You know? That's why I'm a big Bruce Lee philosophy guy, martial arts. So um, my father was a, uh, my stepfather was a special forces Green Beret. So during the eighties, Ronald Reagan declared war on drugs. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And um, he, his mission was to go down to Central and South America and, and to, uh, to train fit operations, to be able to force multiply, to do counter drug missions. So he was in and out, you know, and I was starting to put together the pieces, you know, of, of what the Green Berets were. 
and there were green berets everywhere around Fayetteville, right? Yeah. So, you know, in our neighborhood, we had guys from Vietnam, Sante, uh, Raiders. Um, I mean, that's where – literally, I didn't have any friends growing up because nobody liked me. I was, And you didn't even know you were walking among legends right then, too. I didn't. I didn't. You know, I I've sat been guilty of the same. With uh, this guy named Mr. Joe Lupiak, and he was a Sante Raider, you know, if – for the viewers, if you don't understand what Sante Raid was, it was the first uh, mission that the Green Berets interacted with the CIA at that intelligence level and strategically strike this prison yard. Prison, they moved the prisoners, but it was the mechanics of it, the mechanics of it, the, the integration with the agency. And uh, he was part of that. He was a, a friend of mine. He was an older gentleman, and he was a friend of mine when nobody wanted to be my friend when I was a teenager. So I grew up around that. I grew up around, you know, Green Berets. And I, you know, I knew their mission because I, I heard the Frito Press to to travel around the world. And I was bind by this code that I was watching on these VHS tapes hundreds of times. I watched that thing hundreds of times growing up, the Art of Budo. And I was tying in this samurai way of living, the code of living in the Bushido code. I'm like, wow. How pure is that as a warrior? And I, I saw the Green Berets as my ticket to travel around the world to free the oppressed and enslaved. And I put the two and two together. So at 13 years old, we um, we went to uh, visit the refugees. So now we're living, you know, kind of not so poor anymore, right? Because my my stepfather, uh, we're not that rich. He was an enlisted man. But we're not poor. We're not hurting. So my mother would. You're not me. sitting up in a crowded bottom of a ship somewhere on the South China Sea. That's right. Like things are a little better. Yeah. Things are better, right? And of course, I was still getting picked on and stuff. But I made friends with the special forces older guys, right? And I, I tell you, man, I didn't know any better. They were just the ones who became my friends because nobody else cared about being my friend. And um, we went to deliver food to the locals, right? Because my mom would cook food and give it to the needy, to the homeless refugees in the area. And um, I, I, I was 11 and I, we got back in the car, we were driving back and I said, I don't know why we waste our whole day driving across town, giving people that don't appreciate you anything. They don't appreciate you, I don't. I don't even hear them say thank you. You got so real, she stopped the car, right? And, um, she said, look at me, son, you know, and she said, no matter how bad we are, no matter how bad off you are in life, if you can, you need to help others. And in doing so, we create a better world. Like, wow. How deep is that, right? Yep. So it was that day that I decided to be a green brain. I, I knew my calling. It was the universe. The universe lined up everything. Right. You know, I think it's it's funny. There's a certain kind of mindset, uh, and not funny, but I don't know, maybe profound. But some people go the other route. You had so much negativity in your life. You could have felt sorry for yourself. You had so much, but then you had this this one thing that would drop in every once in a while, and that one thing is kindness. You know, like I I, I see kindness as one of the most powerful things on the planet. When you want to get something done, be kind. When you don't want to get something done, but but you're just be who you are. Be kind. Like you will get so much further in everything in life with kindness. It's it's a it's an extremely overlooked and powerful thing. And you had all this negative thing and mean people and and the opposite of kindness so much. But then you had the Russians show up, and then this 
Green Beret guy shows up. And then, you know, your mom's always that constant, no matter what. You're seeing this leadership example of, of kindness, no matter what goes on. And, and you may have started going down that bad path, but then, you know, you've got the right amount of kindness coming in and reminding you that that's more important and you're being receptive to it. And the, the tape showing up. Yeah. There's a lot of cool timing things here. Like I, I'm, I'm picturing this visually like a, like a, like a movie playing out. You know? uh, <laughs> it is amazing journey. And I tell you, and, and you're right, man, kindness is everything. Compassion. Right. And those are the, the energies that drove me to be a warrior. Compassion, right? So um, here was the day. So my uncle picked me up. This the Green Beret uncle, right? He picks me up and he he likes to uh, refurbish his Volkswagen Bugs. I guess he does that. Wait, is this a real uncle or is this like uh, Vietnamese? Because my wife's family, everybody's an uncle. Oh, I know. No. This is my American <laughs> uncle that sponsored the paperwork to get us to this thing. Oh, okay, gotcha. Special Forces Green Beret. I think at that time he was a major in, the, in uh, Special. Oh, that one. All right. So he picks me up. The guy's really hard, you know. I mean, Vietnam, stabbed by SKS, you know, SKS, Bandit. I mean, he's he's a hard man. So he'll tell you how things are. Doesn't care if you're 11 years old. So he gets in the bug and he drives me to Dairy Queen where we spend uncle and nephew time together. And, you know, I was I was putting stuff together as, you know, the Green Beret, right? The Frito Press, the Way of Samurai, the Bushido Code, a higher level of living. You know, I got tired of being this weak individual and I saw this path to enlightenment and this way as a warrior to be my best self. I knew it as a defeated boy. So my uncle would drive me and he was out of the blue, man. He's just driving. I'm sitting in the pasture seat. He was like, you know, too. Sometimes you need to ask yourself if you want to be a fucking commando today. When your bones ache and you're tired. You want to be a fucking commander today. When, when people ridicule you and they make fun of you, saying you can't, you need to ask yourself, do you want to be a fucking commander today? You know? And then he said, when it's five o'clock in the morning and um, it's raining outside and it's cold and it's so comfortable in this bed, you need to ask yourself, do you want to be a fucking commander? And, you know, he went there and... Um, and I said, yeah, I want to be a fucking commando, you know? And, you know, and then, you know, I said, yeah, I want to be a fucking commando today. I didn't say it to my uncle. I said it to myself that day. And I meant it, you know? So I, you know, I, I put up with the, the racism. I put up with people mocking and making fun of me. And at 16, I started my training. And when I said that, it was high, I, 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 I scoped it out a, uh, a training regiment uh, of, of long, long movements, cardiovascular training, muscular endurance, because I knew the training that was going to wait for me because I knew what I wanted to do when, uh, when I hit 18. So uh, I went through and um, went to a recruiter, uh, applied for uh, uh, enlisted in the Army. At that time, there was no direct forces you have an e5 where you have to do a certain amount of years one of them is waivable uh so um i looked at my my contracts uh and i wanted i i uh, signed up for the 82nd airborne division which would put me back into uh fort bragg north carolina so i could be around my parents you know 
So um, I went through, you know, graduation from high school. It was that day that I left for basic training. Literally, I had a recruiter in the parking lot, kissed my mother goodbye. Uh, my mother cried, man. She broke my heart. You know, she cried. She wanted a better life for me. You know, she escaped from, from war and she knew what the special forces was about, you know. And um, she, she pleaded with me not to go, and I, I did. Anyways, I love my mother. Um, but I knew that she sacrificed so much for me, man, for a higher level education to have a better life. So I did promise her. I said, Mom, I know how much college, I know how much education means to you. So I promise you I will finish college. I promise you that. Kissed my mother goodbye. Went to basic training. Went to airborne school. Got back to uh, the, uh, the 82nd Airborne Division. Uh, we showed up to formation the first day. I was a, a young paratrooper. I was so proud to be a soldier, starch uniform, spit shine boots, uh, maroon beret. Was so happy, man. And uh, we showed up to formation. And uh, I remember the first sergeant was yelling. I was calling this piece of shit. All the new guys, right? The commander came out and said, hey, I got a question for the new guys. Who wants to go to ranger school? We only had a few months in the Army. So uh, I raised my hand. I said, I want to go to, I want to be ranger qualified. And then um, the, the, the first sergeant said, shut the fuck up. Everybody out. Private Lamb, stay here. And he, eight hours, eight hours, he smoked me, called me names, called racist names, smoked me, called me a piece of shit, low life. And then after eight hours, we stood back up and he said, what do you want? I said, I want to go to ranger school. So two days later, I was running down Ricondo Road on the outskirts of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and I graduated pre-ranger. I went to ranger school and I graduated. I came back and uh, I went to a, a scout platoon where I became a sniper. And, and I'll tell you, man, it, it was great, but you ever had the drive to be something more? I had to drive to be something more, so I, I applied for the position. It was a LRC position. So remember the LRPs in Vietnam? Uh, the long, uh, the long range patrol guys. It was a, a ranger uh, kind of outfit where they go out and do do these long range reconnaissance. Well, after uh, Vietnam, they d disbanded the LERP teams and made them to LERS teams, which uh, is long range reconnaissance teams. So I applied for the long range reconnaissance. I made it to amphibious reconnaissance team. Um, I did uh, advanced communications. I understood that at a very young age, at nineteen. I knew how to cut jungle antennas. I knew how to quietly patrol in small, uh, small unit tactics. Uh, and then I made E5, man. You know, I made E5 in a year and a half in the Army. Wow. Right? It's fast, right? Because I, yeah. I applied for all these school. I didn't realize by going through all these hard schools, it put me on the fast track. I just had a goal. I wasn't there for promotion. Remember, I was a weak human being as a child, so I had something to prove to myself. I had to mold myself into this human being. So uh, I got promoted and um, that was the criteria for the special forces. It was either five years in the army or make E5. Well, I made E5 in a year and a half in the army, so I tried out for the special forces. At 20 years old, I was going through special forces training, graduated special forces at 21. I made it to Okinawa, Japan. Uh, where I was assigned to uh, Special Forces uh, CSAR team, so Combat Search and Rescue Team. 
At that time, it was uh, North Korea was the biggest threat. Uh, their Scud missiles, their Nodong missiles can hit America. So we were doing a heavy reconnaissance in that area. Um, I was on a CSAR team, so we, we train on how to uh, do offsets in North Korea and rescue down pilots in, um, in case they get shot down. Thank God that never happened. Uh, but that, that sent me to a lot of advanced training. As in, I mean, I found myself in, dude, uh, Minnesota jumping out with the smoke jumpers, you know, uh, into mountains, you know, on the side of mountains because we had to learn how to rough train jump in the jungles in Malaysia. So I had a lot of advanced training at a very young age, man. You know, during that time, too, I, uh, you know, I'm a martial artist. I've been a martial artist since I was eight. I was stationed in Okinawa, Japan. So I, I, uh, I, I trained in martial arts, you know. And I remember driving down the street one day, and uh, there was a, a, a Marine camp called Camp Foster. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember this huge sign that said, Tough Man Contest. I'm like, wow, what's a tough man contest, right? So I pulled in there, and I, I remember going into fight night, and these Marines were fighting it out in this ring. I'm like, wow, how badass is that, right? And it was during that time when UFC started, you know, getting popular. It was around 97 when UFC started coming out. Remember that, those days? And uh, I, I came up to the, one of the Marines who was running an event, and I said, can an Army guy fight in these events? And he goes, yeah, man, all you have to do is be, you know, active duty. You can fight in these events. So I did. I did. And let me tell you something about Marines. They love to fight, right? They're, they love to fight. So it was, it was endless uh, opponents. And I did very well, man. You know, I was a martial artist. I did very well. And uh, there was this fight promoter called Asanto. And Don Asanto, he, uh, he was kind of shady character. You know, he wanted to make money off of me. So he, uh, he asked if I wanted to fight off base. And I found myself fighting in parking lots and fighting in abandoned buildings. And I realized real quick that these were underground matches. Nice. Right. So there was a letter that came, and I was making a lot. I was making a lot of money on the side. So I'm like, why not fight? Right. I love fighting. So there was a uh, a letter that came out with two star general. Uh, I was slated to fight in this match called the Budokan, which is. Uh, a mainland Japan match, uh, and they were going to host in Japan, and I was picked as one. Uh, I was picked as the main fight card. Uh, they were going to send a guy from mainland Japan. He was a Pancras champion at that time, and he was there to shut me down because I was I was an up and coming star in Okinawa, you know. So the two uh, the two star general pushed out a letter. The UFC started getting real popular, and he said special operations soldiers, especially team guys, would not participate in no of our matches. So I took that letter to my commander and I said, hey, I'm, I'm slated to fight in the Budokan. And he said, hey, man, look, you know, this is coming from his two-star general, you know, and um, I'm not going to support you fighting in these matches. But I love the Budokan and um, I'm going to go watch that match. So he's kind of telling me, do, you, do your thing. So I, I was assigned during that time, I was assigned to a counterterrorist uh, company. So uh, it was called the SIF Companies. Our, we were a direct action company um, for the continent of Asia. So any hostage situation, anything that required direct action, uh, I was on a pager. So I was on one hour recall. And my pager went off. Right? I was training for this fight. Right? I, was, I was the guy who run underneath the, the water with a rock in my hand trying to plead my body oxygen. I would fight. And I was getting in really good shape, man. And um, my pager goes off, and we got pushed into uh, Malaysia, where uh, there was a hostage situation. It was just a training op, 
there was a hostage situation uh, in this stadium. So the snipers had to get kicked out. I was a soldier back then. So the, they had to build up the intel. So imagine that intelligence building and a hostage negotiation, all that. So we were stuck there for three weeks in an old abandoned rat infested hangar, you know, taking a shower. Well, we didn't even have showers. We had a, a dip bath, right? And the water was like green. Needs to say everybody got sick. Everybody got sick. And we, we rotated back to Okinawa, and I had five days prior to the fight, and I, I was sick. I had, it was just really bad, man. And my, my medic's like, hey, dude, you, you need to stop this fight. You know, I'm worried about you. They're seeing a guy from mainland. He's going, he's came, he comes here to shut you down, and I'm concerned about your health, your safety. Uh, let me think about it. So the day of the fight, I, I show up to the fight, and here I am. I'm, I'm, I'm taping up my wrists and... And I poke my head out, and my whole freaking team is there, you know. So uh, the stress was on, you know. And um, one of my best friends at the time came back. He said to you know, I'm really worried about you, man. And then Don Santo comes back to fight for me. He said, I need to stop this fight. You're not doing good. You know, you're really ill. You're really sick. Like literally when I was doing the, uh, the focus mitts, 30 seconds of just focus mitt work, Jeez. I was vomiting, right? I was really bad off. And I usually weigh 200 pounds, and I was at 180. And this Pancreas champion was 210. So uh, Donna Soto said, I'm going to stop the fight. And I said, you don't stop the fight. I'll fight him. And I remember, do you want to be a fucking commando today? So I did. So I walked out to the ring. And um, I was first because I wasn't the champion. And uh, I was really sick, man, you know. And he came out. He was a big dude. Right? He was a big Japanese. 30 pounds on you right now. Yeah, he was really big. He was really, man, he was so skilled, right? Um, so he defeated me. I lost that, that night. And, um, fast forward that three months later, right? I was in Thailand fighting in a Muay Thai match in, uh, in Tok Lee. And uh, there was a sergeant major that rotated through and he was going to go to CAG to take that unit. He was the first group sergeant major. He was going to go to CAG, which is a special missions unit, a tier one unit. And um, he was in Thailand and uh, I was getting in the dressing room, getting, getting ready for this fight. And uh, one of my teammates came back. He said, hey, that's sergeant major. I can't say his name because he's still doing uh, classified stuff. But he said, he's here. And I'm like, what's that mean? Am I in trouble? Because that policy letter. Right. And he goes, I don't know, man, you do what you need to do. It's your career. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to go fight. Right. So I went out there and I, I fought. The match didn't last long. Uh, I took down a Muay Thai fighter and I came back and um, one of my buddies came back in and he said, hey, did you know so-and-so was out there? And I said, yeah, because he hands me a business card because he wants you to call him. Oh, my God, I'm in trouble. My career's over, right? So uh, I didn't know what to do, man. I was so nervous. I remember showering that night, and I came back um, to camp, and uh, I was so nervous, and I called him. And so, so I made her, did you, you know, you were at, at my fight. And he goes, yeah, yeah, really good. Uh, you know where I'm going, right? And I said, yes. And he goes, um, I want to hire you on as the unit combatives instructor. You're interested. A tier one unit combatist guy. Wow. And then he said, look, man, you know, your job is to travel around the United States, train, 
go around the world. It's an unlimited budget, right, in a tier one unit. So uh, you just train, you fight, and then you, you come back, you teach teach the unit. Wow, that's awesome. So I knew his his timeline to go take back that unit, and I had a rotation uh, in Zamawanga, Philippines. We were combating Abu Sayyaf uh, at that time in uh, southern Philippines. Abu Sayyaf was a uh, – it, it was a – I don't know, it was Al-Qaeda-funded uh, terrorist organization. They wanted their own independent Muslim state in the uh, southern They're community. still fighting remnants down there. Right, right. So you understand that, that area. Um, yeah, I spent some time in the Philippines. We do Balakatan every year. I was stationed okay. in Okinawa for like three years, actually, and we'd go there and Cobra Gold and all this nice. other stuff. Yeah. Nice. So you know Camp Foster, Dan? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. All right. So NTA, uh, Jungles. Yeah, yeah. Camp Swab. I'll, I'll, we we used to train at Camp Hanson, their uh, their shoot house with their four yep, further up north. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I I rotated to the Philippines and I did uh, my rotation there. Um, let me tell you about a tier one unit, man. You want you? Don't matter where you are in the world. So I was in a dirt. I was in Zamawanga in southern islands of the Philippines near Indonesia. There was no. There was dirt trail roads, right? And they asked me to put can lights out. So I put these can lights out and there was a, a non-commercial aircraft landed, picked me up, flew me into Manila. Within 24 hours, I was in North Carolina, uh, sitting in front of a bunch of sergeant majors in the unit. And, um, you know, I had to go through their hiring process, which was, you know, a lot of physically demanding stuff, uh, academics, you know, psych, you know, I mean, you're working at that tier one level now. So if you pass that, then uh, the hiring process, and then you get hired on to that unit. Well, I passed, and then uh, I got hired on there. And, and you know, I was a combatant guy. I worked in selection and training. Um, I was only E7 at that time. So all the selection and training in the unit is all sergeant major positions. So they're all E9. It's, hmm. you know, that's how you career progression. So I took one of the sergeant major slots, you know, and um, – you know, I, I, I did, man, I trained, I traveled around the United States. I did everything that I wanted to do as a martial artist. I, man, I, I trained with the Native Americans in Tomahawk Blades, um, Blade Fighting Kali, you know, stream, all these different martial arts. Man, it was a dream for me. It was great. And I worked out every day and I had the best strength coaches and conditioning. See, coaches. I'm so jealous of that. So, you know, I, I joined the Marine Corps at 17 years old, like a month after I turned 17. I grew up in the Marine Corps and I, I never... I'd never seen any uh, like the way the Air Force goes to war is amazing. The way the, what the Army does for some of their elite units is absolutely amazing. My brother-in-law is a fifth group guy. He's a, he's about to retire slash medically retire. Um, he's been in like twenty-one years, and um, he he's telling me about like all the all the special forces guys. You know they're they're all on CPAPs. At, at night because they sleep so much better and they have like the best amount of oxygen and they're all like have these like Olympic level strength coaches and, and they have all these other things just to keep these guys in their top physical shape and they do all these little tests and like visual acuity and like cognitive acuity and everything else just to keep these guys like to, to recognize if they've dropped in something and find a problem in their life and fix it. it I, I didn't even think about any of those things. I've never had anybody care that much about you know me I, I i was mad at the marine corps because about two years ago i finally learned how to run from youtube 
Yeah. Run, run the right way. All wrong in the military. I've been running wrong my whole life, man. Like I'd have had better PFTs. I wouldn't have had like as many hurt injury injuries and things like that. Like nobody showed me how to run the right way, you know. And like I was mad at the Marine Corps. I'm like, why didn't y'all show me this? You just said run, and that's kind of how it is, you know. But I also bring that over into my training sometimes. Now, like I don't spoon feed. Like I, I, I want you to. There's some things that we need to at some levels, but then whenever that they're at sustainment level, I'm like, I'm like, let's run. You know, and, and then we'll pick apart how you ran kind of thing. But a different story altogether. But I, I, that, that mindset of the way that they were taking care of you guys to keep your, your peak performance, I, I never thought about any of that until he's telling me these stories. And I'm like, man, that's awesome. Like, I went the wrong route. <laughs> well, you know, we all have our own routes, man. <laughs> grass is always greener too, right? Yeah, the grass yeah. is always greener on the other side. And in fact, you know, when I joined the military, I loved the Marines. I, I still love you know my marine friends you know um but yeah they they always tell me night and day difference right actually the air force gets the best treatment you know for sure but in a, in a tier one you know i was in a tier one unit so i had the best best coaches best strength coaches and uh, i was doing jujitsu uh with team rock hoist gracie would come in he belted me um a, a few times you know he comes in he gets contracted out to the unit and uh there was a c squadron sergeant major and he was about to rotate in a combat rotation into, you know, Iraq. And it was during, it was 04, so imagine those years, right? Heavy fighting years. Oh, yeah. In a tier one unit, you're going to get in gunfights. So he came in and he said, too, you know, I, I, um, I, went, I would like you to go on this combat rotation with us. You know, I'm just a combatist guy, right? But he took a liking to me and he knew my background. He knew I was more than this. Right. And um, so I got my team gear and I uh, put everything together. I rotated in and um, we got in gunfights every day. Where were you at? We were in Team Baghdad. So we were flying out to Al-Assad. We were hitting all over it. We were that was in 04? That was 04, 05, 06. Yeah. I was there 03, 04 and into 05. And uh, we were on a crude oil power plant that uh, powered part of Baghdad in northern Babel. So I was running in the green zone, might have passed each other and waved at each other. It's funny yeah. how paths almost cross a few times, you know? Yeah. I was always going to Baghdad International Airport, Camp Victory, and then up to Baghdad to pick yeah. up Iraqi police, and then back down to Northern Babel and, you know, across uh, Tampa and, and all the other stuff. You know, it's like, yeah. It was a great life, man. You know, we, we had a fast It was a rough year. You know, that's when I found out that, you know, the Special Forces, we have some cool stuff in SOCOM, but JSOC got some really cool stuff right so i mean uh up armor bmws to chase down vehicle interdiction yeah. we, you know we have task force 160th special operations pilots you know so i saw at that varsity uh league and you know we've been in gunfights every day you know and um three months uh, later we rotated out and uh, i went back to uh, the squadron and um the selection training sergeant major say, hey, we're putting you in for a valid award. We, we heard you did some great stuff. And they're like, look, man, you're E7. And you're taking a E9 slot. I need to open up that slot for more career progression. So we're doing away your slot. You can go down to operations and you can apply for uh, other positions within this unit. If they accept you, you go there. If they don't, then you're going to have to go back to special forces, go back to group. And I tell you, man, you know, I, I was kind of ready to leave, you know, combatives was really cool, but I kind of like done what, you know, I got that out of my system and I wanted to affect probably my- after being gone for three months, doing what you were doing there, like that, 
that lights a fire in you. It does. That it's hard to quench, and you and you always want to keep that fire a little bit stoked, but then maybe not all the waste. I, it's it's a tough one. Yeah, absolutely, man. But you know, there's certain uh, capabilities within that unit that makes it extremely lethal. And uh, that's obviously the intelligence with the CIA, the end working with the NSA, we're working on all these stuff, different stuff. And there's so I, I saw a capability when I was there. That's what I'm saying. A very unique capability that I've never seen before. So as I was walking down to operations to try to look for a job, you know, they were thinking I was going to go to heavy breachers. I was going to go to dog handlers. You know, that's just direct, you know, what we would do. Right. Um, I went to reconnaissance. So there was this wing. Uh, it was is a very uh, is a different level of security. So I didn't have the security clearance to even go into that level of wing. Um, but I saw their capabilities overseas. And uh, I came up there. I knocked on the door. Um, the camera turned on. The door started speaking to me. Who are you? And I was like, my name's T. Lamp, and um, I would love to speak to your troop sergeant major. They're like, why? And I'm like, because. Um, I would like to apply for a position here. Uh, I, I said, I, my badge will work. And they're like, because you don't have the security clearance, right? So I went in there, got hired on. Uh, they liked me. Uh, I was part of certain unique projects when I was with 1st Special Forces Group on Okinawa. I was part of a, a, a group called uh, Native Warrior, which, you know, because I blend in, I, I'm Asian. So I'm able to blend in a little bit more. Uh, into certain areas, so I, I worked a lot of the low vis stuff in first group. I, I've, I was wondering if that would have played into it ever, and that's interesting that they did that. You know, do you have one of those faces that that um, you know you can you can blend into a wide variety of of, of places. Um, my my wife is the same way that you guys share the same last name, her maiden name, but the um, like Arab country, yes. Asian country, yes. Uh, Latin country, yes. It's like you you guys have this this look where you can easily just change the the headdress or something, and you can instantly fit in there. And uh, I, I'm, the CIA must love people like that, and you know some some uh, human intelligence things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I spoke foreign languages. I had my uh, my background in the special forces, so I understood a lot of the tactics. You know, a lot of that stuff. Now. Uh, so I started working reconnaissance, and I, I, I'll let you know the first day was, this is how a cell phone works. Wow, this is this is how iridium uh, works, and this is the iridium satellites. This is where global star satellites orbit. You know, so it was totally out of my realm. I'm like, why am I learning how a cell phone works? You know, and they, they would teach us uh, covert means of communications. They would teach us all that. I was learning all that at that level, and uh, we went through agency. Uh, training, you know, which lasted eight months. It was an eight months of agency, but it was uh, there were certain phases of training uh, with the agency. And the reason why is because we had to work for the chief of station um, after we upon graduation. Right? Mm. So after eight months of training, um, it was hard, man. You know, it was definitely uh, challenging for me because I was. I came from a tactical background. I was used to raids, ambushes, you know, tracking down human beings in the jungles. And now I'm, I'm being this guy who blends in in the city, right? And um, obviously it's, it goes to a, a, a higher level of classification, right? I, I can't talk about, but I did a lot of covert uh, stuff within that unit. You know, I've been to a lot of countries. I travel around the world. 
providing eyes and ears for them, one of the most lethal uh, finishing capabilities in America. So we did that, and um, remember Libya fell. You know, when the, the annex, the CIA annex got attacked, the Americans were drugged out. You recall we didn't react right away. Mm-hmm. Americans didn't react. So that bothered me, man, you know, because here I am, I'm working these, you know, covert uh, missions, and that could easily have been me, you know. So um, I requested through JSOC to be transferred to uh, AFRICOM command and help stand up an action arm for the Horn of Africa. So like like the uh, like when I was in Asia, we had to react to hostage situation, direct action operations within the continent of Asia. I was leaving CAG to go stand up an action arm for the continent of Africa to, in response to Libya, right? So we went there. We um, Eventually, I made my way into Libya, um, training rebel forces uh, out there. And when I say rebel forces, imagine a hodgepodge of criminals, <laughs> rebels, militia groups, right? They fought you against- Train as long as you're paying. That's right. Fought against the uh, Gaddafi regime. Um, we trained a commander force. Uh, we took down what we need to do in that country. Um, one of my, my last missions was I had to protect our, our former president, um, uh, gosh, man, Obama, right, in, in South Africa, because he was going there from Dallas' uh, funeral. So I was uh, part of the counter assault team with the Secret Service. And, and I'll let you know, man, at that time I started falling apart as a human being. I was uh, at 14 years, 14 and a half years of war and conflict. When I say that, it's back-to-back rotations into war zones and conflict areas for 14 and a half years. I had uh, 19 years of special operations. So I was falling apart and I didn't know it, right? You know, I, um, the common practice in, on the teams is, hey, man, you know, you get shot, you get blown up and stuff. So uh, our common practice in, in, uh, in Eastern, um, in uh, Western uh, med- medication was what? To give us painkillers back then, right? To keep us yep. on the battlefield. And let me explain this to, to your audiences. You know, the war zones, it's not a, like a, a schedule, right? You don't have a schedule. You're there. You're there to kill the enemy. And you're there to find, fix, and kill the enemy. The enemy has a say in your schedule. Right. You don't, yeah. You know, everything's time sensitive. So what I'm saying is I can lay in a hide side in the middle of Baghdad in some abandoned elevator conducting reconnaissance for eight days. So you're not sleeping, barely getting any sleep. So in order to stay awake, they give you Adderall. Right. And then when you come back off the rotation, you can't turn it off because you're hyper vigilant, right, to the next op. Don't know when that pager is going to go off, so they give you Ambien to go to bed. And the pain that you feel from, you know, I've been IED'd, you know, so they give you opiates. It was common practice. So what I'm trying to say was I was really bad off, man, when I was in South Africa. I was really heavily addicted, and I didn't even know how I got there. And um, I was, I remember I was out in Cameroon, Africa, in Buna Majita, and we we're doing counter poaching operations to, to stop the Chad rebels from killing wildlife to fund their terrorist camps. And I was sitting there out, out on a tent drinking chai tea. And you ever have a moment, man, that you're present? That you're actually there? Yeah. It's beautiful, isn't it? 
I had that moment that morning. I was drinking chai tea and the sun was coming up and I could see the wildlife in Africa. I was there. I found my peace that morning. And I haven't found peace in so many years, man. I don't think I ever had it. Tell you the truth, I was born in war. So that energy of peace, right? I, I, re- I felt it that morning, that presentness to be aware of life. And I wrote down in my journal, peace, because that was my new path. When, when this was going on, were you finding yourself slipping away from that Bushido code? Yes. And it wasn't a priority in your life as much anymore? It was uh, not even a thought anymore. I was lost. I was lost. How can something be, how can a path that was so right for me at childhood now, how can I be so lost now? So I wrote the word peace, and uh, after that rotation, I, uh, I retired from the military. 23 years, and my new journey was peace. I didn't find it, man. Right. So people always tell me, hey, you know, when you get out, people think if you're in a safe environment, you don't have to be in that combat environment anymore. You're not active duty anymore. You're going to find your peace. Peace is not found there. Peace is not found in money. Peace is not found in success. Peace is not found in fame. That's right. Peace is found in what you are willing to give every single day, but what you're willing to, to do within those moments. Let me explain this, you know, so when when I first got out, man, I, I laid in bed all day. You know, my wife was this successful business girl, right? Master's degree, accounting degree. And she would drive up to Denver, Colorado. And she managed all these people in a major corporation, you know. And you had this 23-year-old, 23-year career commando. And all I wanted to do was lay in bed, man. Shades down in the dark house. You know, I would sit around in my living room, stare at an empty TV all day, just TV that's off. It's really defeated. And I remember this day, this, this day, I had a blanket wrapped around me. It was a dark house. My wife's up in Denver, and, and uh, I walked around the house, and somehow I ended up in my office. Don't even know how I got there. Were walked. you still on the opiates and, and everything yeah. now? At this Heavily. Had, had you at this point fulfilled your promise to your mother? Yeah, so I graduated college uh, while fighting counter-poaching operations in Cameroon. I, I actually graduated with honors. All right, cool. I figured we are going to come back to that. And that I, I love that. Thank you for bringing it up because that yeah. was so important. Because, you know, uh, going to these foreign countries, there were certain countries that didn't have internet. So how do you go to college? I would drive two or three hours to a local internet cafe, right, with a pistol on my hip line and burst out a freaking turkey. <laughs> Right. So it was very hard, but I graduated honors and, you know, I, I showed my mother my diploma. She cried, right on. you know, but yeah, I took my final exam on a Cameroon commando camp. So here I am. I had this blanket wrapped around me. I'm walking and I, I opened up. Uh, I went in front of my bookcase. I'm a big reader. I opened up my bookcase. And I don't know, man. Somehow my hand reached in there. I pulled out a book. I didn't even look at the, the title and. It was the Book of Five Rings by Miyamoto Masashi, a ronin written in 1645 in a Buddhist cave, Redondo Cave, where he wrote that. And Ten days later, he died in this cave, and he was a ronin. He was uh, he was a gardener. He was a philosopher. He was a master swordsman. He was a warrior, and he encompassed Bushido, everything I always wanted to be. But here I am, lost. I opened up the book, and he said. 
the pastor said that, you know, everything is this within. Or your love or your compassion, everything's within. Look nowhere else. Something so simple, man, right? I needed to hear those words. So. No, I, man, I, people who are single think if they have a, a significant other, that's going to solve all their problems and make them happy. People that are with somebody else, if they're single again, that'll make them happy. If they have this thing, if you cannot be happy with just yourself, you cannot be happy with anything else. Sure. It's just, it's not going to, you're not going to have that peace, that happiness. Absolutely. So I went upstairs and I looked at myself in the mirror and I, I hated myself. And I said, how did something that was so good to serve humanity and free and enslave become so bad for me? So I went to my medicine cabinet. I, I threw all my medicine down the toilet and I flushed it. And I suffered. Let me, let me explain what happens when, when you take medication for eight years. Because I did eight years trying to cover up the pain that I felt from war and the loss from my teammates. It's gone that uh that medication wall is gone right that chemical wall is gone so i felt the weight of the world the screams the horrors of the world and i and i tell you as a green beret i fought in every continent in the world i've been to i've been to every continent i've been to 27 countries and i heard the voices from every single one of the victims my life was crashing i had never been in such a bad place man I wanted to quit. So I Googled, you know, causes of sleeping in bed all day, and it was depression, right? Oh, God. And I Googled causes of being fatigued post-military career. Depression and PTSD came up. Mm -hmm. So I went to uh, go talk to a doctor. He said, look, son, you've been it. You've been through it. You're, you know, here's some antidepressants. Good luck. This is where I want to bring you guys to this moment. As I was driving home, see, the Western way of thinking is to shove medication down your throat, something that is external. See, that's the Western way of thinking is to look for the externals so it can make us feel good inside. As in, I'll be happy if I'm rich and I'm looking for the externals. I'll be happy if this girl likes me. I'll be happy if I land that job. See, all that is external. My friend. Treating symptoms, not the problem. That's right. So I came home and I took those antidepressants. I dumped it down the toilet. And then I Googled meditation. Let, let me explain what meditation is. You know, the mind is always in two time zones. The mind's in either in the past or it's focused on the future. It's never really present. You have to exercise your mind to be able to focus on the present. That's why people face depressions, they face anxieties, because their mind is constantly in those two time zones. So you have to train your mind to be present in the current moment, to sever that energy of the past, right? The pain, the mistakes, all of it, because we're human beings. We all make mistakes, man. You know, life is a journey of wrong paths until you find your right path. I'm trying to find my right path, right? So I Google meditation and I'm like, man, there's a wealth of information. There's YouTube videos on it. I'm like, how hard does it be? I'm just going to sit there and get a proper meditation posture. I'm just going to focus <laughs> on my breathing. How hard can this be? Right. So um, I did, man. I bought a meditation mat from Amazon. I went down to my office. I closed the door. I started meditating. 
my my goal was 30 minutes. I failed miserably. I couldn't shut down the noise in my mind. My mind, you know, was free floating everywhere, but in the present moment. Even when I tried to focus on the present, it didn't matter. I was thinking about something else. The noise. See, I, I find this very interesting because I've I've read about it, but I've, I've never. I, I can't say that I've ever really tried hard to, to meditate or get in a meditative state, but I know what you're talking about. Like, man, my mind, it's always on the, on the future and, and the past and how the past affects the future and a lot of the negatives from that. But when I can be in the moment, you asked if I've been present in the moment, I've been that way a few times hiking, you know, in, on, yeah. in, in mountains, you know, where like right here, right now is where I'm supposed to be. What I'm seeing is what I'm supposed to be looking at. There's nothing else coming that's important. There's nothing else I should be doing that's more important. I've been there when, when writing fiction where I feel like this is where I should be right now. The muses are speaking to me, whatever the spirits, uh, if you want a terminology you want to use. Um, and recently when I was riding adventure bikes that were way bigger than anything I've ever ridden out in the Mojave Desert like three weeks ago, where I was forced to think about every single grain of sand almost that I was riding over so I didn't crash this big 1250. Like I was forced through my uncomfortableness and lack of skill and what we're doing and risk involved. Like I have no choice but to be right here in the present, in the moment, what's happening now, not what's coming, not what's around the corner, not what's for dinner tonight, not what I'm going to do when I get home. But like right here, but I've never, and I love that. I love that feeling. You know, if I'm in pain running long distance, I stop thinking about the book I'm listening to or the future. And it's every step is what I'm thinking about, you know? And like, there, there's a certain point where you get there. And, and, and I love that. I don't always love it in the moment, mind you. Right. But uh, afterwards, having done that, I, I, I feel it, you know, it's great. But uh, you're telling me that I can get to that kind of same thing by, by sitting here with my legs crossed and, um, in a meditative state. Yeah, man. Never and, experienced it. And I'll explain to you how important that is. You know, so the mind, you know, do you ever wonder why, like, from two to five years old, a child, right, um, if they get abused during that, that age, if they get sexually molested, they're ruined for the rest of their lives. Everything mm -hmm. is interpreted to a child that age. Do you understand why that age was so important as why? for mind development in the mind? The stage that they're at in their development? Yeah. So from two to four, your analytical mind hasn't been developed yet, right? You don't develop that until you're seven to nine. So you're just going off of truly a subconscious mind. Your, your brain doesn't know how to think back, you know, when you're that young. So when a child is that young, right, it's just what he interprets goes straight to the subconscious. There's no uh, analytical there, which right and wrong, trying to rationalize it. We're learning that stoves are hot and, right. and that. Yeah, exactly. Right. So from two to five, man, I was escaping from my life. I was around a bunch of dead people. Saw the worst in humanity. So when I started studying the mind, I realized, like when I was growing up, not only was I facing racism and hate in America and acceptance and, and all that. I was I, I I had scars from my childhood years from escaping and watching my uncles get murdered from me. I just didn't know it. Right? So as I started studying in mind, I'm like, okay, so all this stuff is in my subconscious. It's buried there. How do I get through my subconscious? 
because the subconscious mind makes about 95% of your brain and 5% of your brain is your conscious mind is the body and your analytical mind. So when we're in combat, our analytical mind is deciding right or wrong. You know, you're reading the situation, you're making these decisions over and over. When you're at that level, your analytical mind is moving so fast. Well, you can never get to your subconscious if your analytical mind is moving. So in the mornings is, is the best time to practice uh, meditation because your brain waves are slower. Your analytical mind uh, is slower. So if you're able to move past that analytical mind and go into the subconscious, now you're programming your brain again. So meditation does that. All right, so here I am. I'm meditating. I'm failing, right? I, I failed the first day, the second day, the first week, the first month, the first year, second year, third year. When I Were started, you having elements of growth here in, in all know, this failing? What was funny is, you know, I had, you know, I'm a type A personality, so I, I expect to be this, right? But, I've been good at everything immediately that I've ever done. Why can't I do this? Right. right? It was hard, man. I, I, I'll tell you. So I'll bring you back to this day. I was sitting in my uh, my porch, and I was drinking uh, my coffee that morning, and I heard the birds. Let me explain this to you. I haven't really admired the sound of a bird since the beginning of the war. That means I have to be present to be able to hear this bird, right? I have to be present. So what I was saying, it was working. I just didn't know it was. And during that time, I was growing my company, right, Ronin Tactics. So Ronin Tactics, uh, I travel around America, and I, I teach major law enforcement. So I teach SWAT teams. I teach all around military. I teach uh, law-abiding citizens. Uh, it depends on, you know, the organization, on what level of skill I want to teach them, you know. Um, and I, I, one of my healing process, I would write. I would write a lot, man. And, you know, on my bad days, I would take the deepest notes. And I, I, you know, on my bad days too, I like to share my stories. And you can find out, like, my social media. I, I share it with the world, my scars. Because if I, if I expose my scars to the world, I commando. A guy who everybody's like, okay, that's a tough lifestyle. You have to be this. But if I humanize it, man, because we're all humans. Yep. So I started sharing my scar, and now I realized this I was helping others. You know, I was reaching the world, and I didn't know it. And I would travel around, and then we got to a point where, you know, I started recording my training, and I started. Was it that your original mission? For what? At 13 years old? I didn't know. I, could, I you know, it was helping weird. others. I didn't put it back together like that yet. I looked at it as, wow, I gave this person this this skill, these words to help them, and man, that made me feel good. Yeah. So I'm here. So you're back on task, man. I, I didn't know it. Yeah. I, I didn't know it because to me, it was just a healing process. That's awesome. Yeah. Right. And and let's get back to kindness, right? Because I wrote down my flaws. Wrote down my flaws, man. I had I had a lot of flaws. You know, let me tell you something. Being a commando, you know, during the height of the war for 23 years, you know, you're going to have to, like, do away with certain things, right? Like in war, kindness, you're going to have to push that aside a little bit. Not that you're mean or un uncompassionate to the human race, but you have to push away kindness for a little bit if you mm -hmm. want to survive, right? That can't be your 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 top governing principle. It can't be a driving force. So, you know, when I'm trying to find my peace, I realize that 
what kept me alive overseas, which was the element of fire and hate, I will never find that in this evolution of my life, peace, if I continue to hold on to that energy. So in my mind, I had to kill my best friend, which was hate, right? How do you do that? With love. So kindness, right, was, was a big thing. So I drove to uh, local Starbucks, and um, I would read. When somebody walks through the door, I'll stop what I'm doing, open up the door, and say, have a nice day, sir. I'll go up to the lady making my coffee, and I say, you know, I come here every day because you make the best coffee. Gratitude, man. Gratitude, right? You know how – can you explain how hard that is, man, after a military career? Can you explain to your audience? No, I, look, I, to, I've been referred to on a few different occasions as the Matthew McConaughey of the firearms training industry. <laughs> I, I take that as a compliment, man. Like just uh, – uh, I get a little hippie on the positivity stuff, a little hippie on the, uh, the kindness thing and the gratitude thing. And um, when we finish the show, I'll tell you about my um, little Tango Yankee chips that are my contribution to the world to, to get people to show gratitude and say those things before it's too late and they never get a chance to say the things that they wish they would have said. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, you're, you're in the right audience right here with me. You know, it's like, uh, and I, I know we've been talking for about an hour and 25 minutes, and I'm by all no means trying to, to get you to speed up or anything. Um, but in the things that we've talked about, I've got about 10 topics right now that I want to talk about in like the next 10 podcasts and in the future, you know, if we can get together, because uh, I think there's just so much to dive in here that, that we're like-minded and going to have some things that we've both found to be high priorities in our lives and very interesting stuff. And, and you have a, a different perspective and, and the way of explaining it than I do. And, and I like it. Thank you. Thank you. So what I want to tell your audience is it was very hard for me to be this, person of kindness you know the special forces is a very tight-knit organization right and we can only hang out with each other because who else am i going to talk my secret life to who else it's a shame-based culture we're used to shame-based cultures and that does that's not kind right so here i am i'm trying to be kind i'm making all these comments some people was like hey were you a freak right get away from me and i was just I wasn't trying to be a freak, man. I was just trying to heal myself, you know? So uh, after a year of that, I became kind again. You know? I practice. I practiced it, right? Yeah. <laughs> and during that, during that time, you know, I'm a martial artist. I'm a gunfighter, a martial artist. I had a whole career. So these movements are very natural to me. I've been training martial arts since I was eight. These, these movements, it's truly motion. I don't think about it. It's... It's a natural movement for me. It's like turning on a light switch. You know, if I need to shoot something uh, on a pistol, I I see it, and it, it just it just happens because my body and my mind is connected like that. I've been doing it for so long. So I teach people the state of Mushin, and I <clears throat> when I go around, I teach in the United States. I teach them the way, Bushido, the way to compassion. And here's the lethal skills because we stop, we stop violence with violence, right? We're just the good in this world. And I teach them how to be good in this world, right? And in the process, I was, I was promoting videos, right, to promote the training. And uh, the History Channel uh, emailed me and they said, hey, I, I love your nice stuff. Um, 
you know, big fans, um, would you be interested in being a co-host on a TV show called Fortune Fire Knife or Death? Um, sure. Right. So I, I, um, I tried out for it. They liked me. So I was the co-host next to Bill Goldberg. Um, you know, and that was my first exposure to Hollywood, different world. Yeah. You know, artists, you know, wardrobe. I'm not used to that. Right. I'm not used to that. And, uh, somehow it's I, easy I didn't to get to your music. head though. in that stuff. It didn't. Good. It didn't get to my head, man. You know, what's weird is like, when I assistant knock on the door, she's like, you know, Mr. Lamb, what do you want for lunch? I'm like, I don't know. What do you feel like eating? You know, because I don't put yeah. myself in that. You know, I, I'm used to living in the mud and, you know, the dirt, you know. Um, yeah. So I appreciated that so much, you know, for showing me kindness. And Bill Goldberg and I became friends and the show was successful for three seasons. And uh, I continued to train, right? And in between filming the seasons, I would travel around America and I would train. And um, there was a certain point where uh, Infinity Ward, uh, Call of Duty people, called me and um, they were like, hey man, love your martial arts move, your gunfighting is different because I implement martial arts into my gunfighting. They're like, hey, um, you know, we would love to fly you out to LA and we would love to do a meet and greet. So we, actually I flew out to San Francisco, I was teaching our SWAT team and uh, they, they bought me a plane ticket to fly into LA, met the president, we hit it off. And uh, he asked me if I would like to be uh, a character on Call of Duty. And they would like to uh, put me in as Ronan, me. So they ne that never happened before in a video game, you know? Man, a huge honor, right? Like, wow. And I found myself now in this uh, suit with all these, uh, I don't know, ball things all over my body. And they're capturing my martial art moves. They're capturing my gunfighting. Uh, it's just a different world, man. And I appreciate it all. But let me, let me explain this to you. I was rising in success and fame, right? Our company, entrepreneurship, I was, it was taken off. And we were so blessed. But I was, I was still depressed, man. Yeah. And I was losing this battle. This is very recent. Yeah. You're taking us almost to very recent. Yeah. yeah. So I was losing this battle, and everybody looks at me, and they're like, oh, God, too, you're so successful now. And they look at me, and they're like, I want to be like you. But what they didn't understand is I was losing the battle internally. So I went to a Tony Robbins seminar, right? And... um. And Tony Robbins, his claim to fame is, you know, he can change his physiology uh, because the mind and body is connected. He can change his physiology. So the mind is connected to your body. So if you think about something traumatic to happen in your past, then that can release chemicals, neurological, and it's mm -hmm. established a neurological pathway to your body. And that's why you feel anxieties and stuff going on, you know, in your body, because your mind and body is definitely connected. God created us like that since day one, you know, as cavemen. That's our survival instinct. The mind affects the body. The body affects the mind. That's right. Absolutely. The only thing is we're a highly intelligent animal. That means that we can replicate uh, a feeling throughout our body just off of a thought. Like your body doesn't mm -hmm. know the difference between reality or what is just a thought. So I thought about that. man. And, you know, Tony Robbins gave us a few exercises and, and everything else. But I thought what was really unique, and I want to bring this to you, is this is what led me to um, peace. 
was that, you know, he, he talked about uh, moral values of the human being, right? He broke down four moral values. He said moral values as in, you know, significance, uh, certainty, uncertainty, love, and um, compassion. You know, man, when I was in the Army, what drove me to be who I was, type A, top of the food chain, like top tier one, what drove me to be an entrepreneur, a successful trainer, and, you know, successful company was significance. I had to place a high level of uh, standards on myself. I've been doing it since I was a child, 16 years old. When I that's another podcast episode right there. If you don't have standards, like, yeah, that's, that's a, I don't know, I'm sorry. Yeah, so I'm I, writing that down. I placed a high level of standard on myself. Okay, so think about this. In the army, it brought me up to the top. In the in, in this evolution, the civilian and entrepreneurship, it brought me to the top really fast. But I would never find happiness there. Let me explain why. Because if you have a higher level of standard on yourself, you think you think this, you have an image or you have a vision of where you need to be, and it's it's a high level, right? It's type A. Well, then in this evolution being of who I am, public exposure, a uh, successful entrepreneur. And you end up chasing standards and I'll be happy as long as I get this done. Or if I reach this standard, I'll be happy. Then you get there and you never. But I I place too much energy on acceptance from other people. Yeah. See, man, you know, I work hard, right? I work hard and that's what makes me successful. I don't need uh, recognition from others, but at that time, because I was, I was kind of lost, you know, it, it did bother me. And, you know, the Tony Robbins seminar, it kind of, I understood that at a deeper level. So now I don't put significance first anymore. No, I I still have a higher level standard. I mean, I wake up at 430 morning, I meditate, I go into physical training. I have a higher level standard, but it's not first anymore. It's not a priority in my life anymore. See, love and compassion is. I replace that as number one. So when, when somebody hates on me and are rude to me, I forgive them because I have love and compassion on my side now. How, can, can I, how is this message received? So we're on the same page, man. The listeners of this podcast are probably like, oh, wow, this, uh, that's the same kind of stuff that, that Daniel says all the time. That's like most important, you know, like, like, but people look at me like I got a dick growing out of my forehead when I talk about stuff like that as a warrior, you know, do, do you, do you see people like start to like look away or act kind of funny whenever you get to that point and, and explain that to people about that is the, why that is the pinnacle? Well, you know, my, my peers are Navy SEALs and, you know, Green Berets. So I go to these where to where conferences where I, I help struggling veterans. And and I want to bring you to this. So I was in an auditorium. I had Navy SEALs and Green Berets and special ops guys in there. And um, and I was explaining just this, like how I was able to find my peace. And one of the SEALs stood up and said, you know, we are always taught, you know, uh, kindness, compassion is weakness. So how do you deal with that? How are you telling me that being kind and compassion is strength while well, I looked at that as weakness? And I also remind them that you need to be able to adapt to the evolutions of your life. And you need to reprioritize what is important. 
on the teams, hate is a good driving force because we can use that as a weapon on the battlefield. We can look past, you know, uh, humanity in order to do this mission, right? But as a human being, as a human, all of us are human beings, right? We all have love and compassion with God. And when I when I came into this evolution of my life, I was holding on to what kept me su- successful in the military, which was that drive off of fire and hate, right? But I realize now as a human being that kindness and compassion is truly the most powerful energy in the world. Think about a love between a mother and a child, right? So uh, I realized that, and then I, I went through the Tony Robbins seminar, and I started changing the way I do things, right? So every morning I get up at 4.30 in the morning, I show gratitude to God, right? And then I go into my meditation, and then I go into physical training, and then I go into my entrepreneurship. So I have a regiment of every single day. I'm training my mind and body to connect. On those bad days, I meditate and I go into back into the present moment. I, I, I tell you, man, I am a Zen master these days. I can meditate <laughs> anywhere. I can turn off the brain anytime I want to now. If, if a person communicates with me, he irritates me, I can turn that emotion right off because I could be present. And if you're present in the present moment, there's no emotions there. There's no emotions. If you're actually in a present moment, there's no emotion because there's no thought there, right? How you look at the world is truly illusion, my friend. And I say that as this, you know, if you and I are in, okay, so you, you are in the military. Let's just say you and I are in the Arctic, right? We're doing winter warfare training. And you come out there and you're like, oh my God, how like beautiful fun. this place is, right? And I, I was born in the truck. I'm like, oh my God, this is horrible. It sucks. I look at it differently than you. I look at the situation differently to you. So I, what I'm explaining to your viewers is I want you to go back in time. One of you guys, go back in time. Think about the hardships. And I want you to restructure that idea to your advantage. What did you, what did you gain from that? You know, And if you didn't gain anything from it and you victimized yourself from it, then I need you to relook at it differently. Right. So the racism that I experienced when I was a child became the energy I need to be this 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 person now to to show kindness and compassion and give others the words of kindness as a human being, as a Ronin, as a as an entrepreneur. What you're talking about is orientation and, and rewriting your own orientation. You know, the violent criminal may have grown up, uh, Varg Freeborn, my, my often co-host on, on this podcast, just put out a new book about Beyond the Oodle Loop, um, and he just focuses only on the orientation because he came from an extremely violent background. Uh, went to prison for five years after growing up in, in violence in his house, and his caregivers and, and guardians were, were a threat to him in many ways. And um, how the that part of society develops their orientation toward, toward violent criminal, and they they hold in high esteem the crazy bad guy who'll do anything. And then, you know, I had a different orientation growing up of, of, of goodness. And my dad was a law enforcement officer. My mother was a school teacher that was practically a volunteer that didn't get paid hardly anything. You know, it was all kindness. And so, but we, we, we both arrived at the same reasons to fight, but through very different orientations. Um, and we both arrived at reasons to be good. Uh, but those are the things that make you act, make you do the right thing, make you do the wrong thing, make you do anything. And you're talking about rewriting the orientation right now um, that 
that drives them to to make actions and, and the way and to think a different way. You know, I say it whenever I'm driving on the road, somebody cuts me off in traffic. That's a chance for me to practice self control. Yes. Like this is a this is an opportunity. For, I fail all the time, right? But this is this is my opportunity right now in the moment to practice self control. I'm going to choose to not be upset cognitively. I'm going to choose to do this. Sometimes I start to be upset, and then in the process of being upset, beginning, then I choose to turn that off and realize that I'm where I'm at and I need to get about out under control. Yep. So it's like very interesting stuff right there. Totally you know, I can shift gears in my brain really fast. That means if somebody's upsetting me, I can shut it off right in my brain. That emotion. That emotion. He's still there. He's still talking. But I can shut off that emotion of how I view this conversation how are you? I feel like a personal attack is happening right now about me having a conversation with you. Like you're shutting me off. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but you see what I'm saying is, man, we, we're such a strong uh, species, right? And God has given such powerful, powerful energy in our bodies. We're, we're looking for it all from the externals. And if you just look internally and you go, I just got to view it differently. And what did I, what did I extract from this lesson of life? What did I learn? You know, when I was facing my depression and, and all that, what did I learned from it? What I learned from it was in order to be the light for others, you must walk in the dark. You must have to walk through the pain and the suffering in order to, to look at this human being, right, and understand that. And let me explain this. When I was in Africa in Buna Majida, going up on villages where rebels would mass murder children and women, and this child looks at me and he lost his parent. I understand at a deeper level than any human being can ever because I walked through that. And as a warrior that serves compassion and God, that goes a long way, right? Because you can free to oppress that way. That sounds like the most powerful thing on the planet right there. That's right. So I realized that when I, now I'm on a platform, I'm in a public eye, you know, I'm a, Call of Duty character. I people view me from around the dude. People view me from around the world now, right? I just made it that, and I don't look at it as in you know I'm this really successful, famous guy. No, I just look at it as like, wow, I have this huge platform to help people. That I can help people. That I can spread the world kindness. You know, so it goes back to what my mother said in the car doesn't matter conditions or circumstances. If we can, we must help others. And in doing so, we create a better world. So that's my message today, guys. You know, we, we, this world, I've been around the world, 27 countries, every continent. I've seen the worst in humanity. I can tell you the world doesn't need more hate. No, it's got plenty. Man, I, so much there to unpack. I, I, I hope people out there listening, um, you know, gathered a, quite a bit of that. And then maybe this is something that I'll probably, I hardly ever, I hate hearing myself talk. So I, I don't um, usually go back and listen to podcasts, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to go back and listen to this one with the wife. You know, it's going to, there's, there's so many good little nuggets here that are, that are very similar in some ways, but then different than, than my perspective. But then the way you explain them are, I don't know, maybe more intelligent more than I, than I often explain them. You know, I usually use more crude language or something, but, uh, I, and not the exact same, like you're painting really good pictures here. And I, I, I hope, I know if I would listen to this 10 years ago, 
I'd be like, this is some weird hippie stuff. Like, who free? This is not. This is not what it's about. Like, I don't know who these guys are, man. He's like selling some snake oil or something like that. That's if if that was me listening ten years ago. Me now is like, this man is speaking straight truth right now, and truth at the highest level of truth. And uh, so I hope somebody out there listening, you know, takes heed from um, you know, I guess a couple of warriors who have seen the worst in humanity, and that thing is so bad that. We want to bring out the best in humanity. Yeah. And that's what's really important. You know, there's an old samurai saying that, you know, we invest so much money and time into health. You know, we care about our health. We want to prolong our life in this world, this physical world. But yet at the final moments in this physical life, when you have to give this life, there's nothing more than to be a good human being. There's nothing more important than be a good human being. And you have to understand that as you're living your life. You don't want to finalize that in the final moments of your life and go, wow, I lived my whole life wrong. Now's the time to make it right. So that is the, that's truly my, my goal in life. So when I take my last breath, I realize all the people I helped, you know, and, um, no matter how small the change I made in this world, at least I tried to make this world a better place. And I know at those final moments, I was a good human being. That's what I'm trying to work for. I'm not perfect, guys. Not not at all. I, I same. I'm the furthest thing from perfect. I'm like the biggest dumbass I've ever met. And <laughs> I, I find myself doing selfish things. Like I, I fell at the self-control thing all the time. But my goal has been for a long time, and it remains, that they have to rent out the Superdome or some massive freaking stadium for my funeral because all the people that I positively impacted in life want to come pay their final respects to me. You know, that, that just building this group of people that I positively helped and not for selfish reasons, but, but because what else is there? There really isn't anything else. That's right. Right. So that's great, man. You know, um, that's my journey. And then you, you back to what you, you asked me, what led you down this path? What led me down this path was a defeated eight-year-old boy sitting across from a cardboard box, defeated. Within the contents of that box was the way, which became a blueprint to my life. So pay attention to life. The universe guides us. God's going to show you signs. It's just, are you willing to absorb that knowledge if you're willing to walk down that path and it requires hard work you know awesome thank you too uh guys out there listen and girls i will have a link to every possible location that you can follow to is and get some you know more of this information and and on a daily basis where you can train with him where you can shop for some of the high quality uh products that that he makes and, and has designed and redesigned There'll be links to all of that stuff that, that he uh, in the show notes or in the blog post version of this right here. And so you can go in there and check it out in the future yeah. um, and ta- dive into some of these topics that we just got a huge overview on a lot of stuff and from you. And uh, I would love to dive into a few. So thank you for joining Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Great conversation, brother. And thank you so much. Thank you. All right, uh, guys, until next time, the mag life out.